Well, please grab your copy of God's Word, flip over to the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Last week we began our study in verses 1 through 3. This morning we'll finish out this chapter on the truth about false teachers. As you make your way to the second chapter of 2 Peter, I want to remind you of a few men this week who made major headlines because they're facing criminal charges. The first man was Rick Singer. He was the, the mastermind or the orchestrator behind that college admissions scam that allowed parents to give enough money to what he was doing that they could bribe administrators and coaches in order to get their kids into the universities they wanted them in. Get them on the teams that they couldn't get to unless these bribes happened. Rick Singer got three and a half years in prison and over $10 million owed. There was another criminal who made the headlines this week, Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger is the man who is who has been arrested as the suspect, he's not yet been convicted, but the suspect of murdering those four University of Idaho college students last November. The affidavit came out and showed some of the evidence that led to his arrest. It included video surveillance of his vehicle, included phone records and usage, matched the time. It included uh, an eyewitness appearance that noted his particularly bushy eyebrows, as well as some DNA found on the knife sheath at the crime scene. A third criminal that made headlines this week was Sam Bankman-Fried. You may know this story. He's the 30-year-old founder, former CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. One news outlet reported it this way. He's accused of orchestrating one of the largest frauds in history. Billions of dollars have disappeared. And it's estimated that there are more than a million creditors, including many FTX customers, hoping to get their money back. He faces criminal charges that, if convicted, could carry sentences of up to 100 years in prison. Well, that's just to name a few of the criminals that made headlines this week. What I want to draw our attention to is the way that those headlines picture spiritual truths for us to think about and consider, particularly for us to think more seriously about spiritual criminals. Now, in a general sense, the Bible says that all of us, all of humanity could be labeled as spiritual criminals, right? We are all lawbreakers and thieves, the worthless, the least, right? We confess that we've fallen short of our God's holy standard. So in one sense, we are all spiritual criminals, yes. But what I'm talking about specifically here are those whom Jesus Christ would label thieves. Remember in John 10, Jesus said that there are thieves who will seek to break in that they might steal, kill, and destroy, whereas he comes to give life, life abundantly. We're talking specifically about those spiritual thieves, those spiritual frauds. 
And it struck me this week as I read these headlines that while these men are being caught and tried, maybe even convicted, there are countless men and women who are getting away with their crimes even as we speak right now. It's 10.50 Mountain Standard Time. That means at least two other time zones in America have already been having church. That means that some churches are meeting right now, which means that there's a very, very good likelihood wolves and criminals are standing up on church stages and behind church pulpits using Jesus and his word to devour and deceive and do damage to the church of Christ Jesus. And as I read those reports, I was confronted with the reality that I don't think about, feel about, or talk about false teachers in the right terms as I ought to. I read some of these guys' sentences. A hundred years in prison, that feels, that feels pretty good. I feel pretty satisfied with that. But I balk at hell. Is that, is that really fit the crimes, God? I mean, I, I can read about spiritual, I can, excuse me, I can read about financial fraud and yet minimize spiritual fraud to such an extent that I don't even tend to think about or talk about false teachers as I ought to. What I'm not trying to do is minimize the crimes of stealing billions of dollars or of killing people. What I'm trying to do is elevate the reality that we tend to miss even as we read the headlines and even as we read our own Bibles. That's why 2 Peter 2 has been such a, a grace in my life. As I've studied it and then preached it, it's confronted me and challenged me and taught me the truth about false teachers. And it's helping me think about, feel about, and talk about them rightly. I believe that we share that together. I don't think we think about, feel about, and talk about false teachers with the kind of gravity, sobriety, and vocabulary that we ought to. Because we don't tend to talk about them in biblical terms, at least in the terms of 2 Peter 2. Church, some of the things that you are about to read in the New Testament today, some of the things I'm about to say are so countercultural because we are conditioned to not say things that make other people feel bad about themselves. But in many ways, that is such a disservice to the sheep who need protected from the wolves, to the little ones, young ones who are naive and need to mature. And I would argue it is such a disservice to the men and women following the flow of false teaching because to not talk and think and feel rightly and biblically 
I think, leads us to fail to reach in to the embers and snag them back before it's too late. So this morning, I want to continue on with the truth about false teachers. Last week in verses 1 through 3, we saw that their methods are deceptive. We saw that their message is destructive. We saw that their motives are disgraceful. In verses 4 through 22, I want to see three more truths. That is the Lord's reliable reputation, the criminal's evil conduct, and our shepherd's loving warning. The Lord's reputation, the criminal's conduct, the shepherd's warning. Let's dive into our first point, the Lord's reliable reputation. Peter here, for a moment, after having talked about the false teachers, directs our eyes away from them and up to the Lord himself. He points us to his character and what's true about him. Now, verses 4 through 10 come off of the heels of the last sentence in verse 3. So look at the last sentence, 2 Peter 2, verse 3. It says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. What he's saying is that God's holy judgment on these false teachers is not slacking and it is not sleeping. It's not like a cartoon where the guys can sneak around the guards and get past them. He says, no, no, no. It's not going to happen like that. Their condemnation is on full alert. Their destruction is awake and waiting. And so in developing that point, Peter, in verses 4 through 10, gives us three historical biblical events that are going to serve as types for his argument going forward. Types that point beyond themselves to a greater reality that's coming. And the main point he's calling us to see is that the Lord's reputation is reliable. He will rescue the righteous and he will repay the foe. Now, Peter helps us out here in the section of Scripture because he cuts through this forest that a lot of preachers and Bible students tend to get lost in. There's a lot of mystery in verses 4 through 10 that you can just kind of start wandering off and suddenly you're lost in all kinds of crazy theology and interpretations. You don't even know how you got there. But Peter is a good guide And he gives us the pathway to his main point. He does it by giving us four ifs and one then. Four ifs, one then. They serve as markers on this path. Look at them with me. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Verse 5, And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world, notice global, of the ungodly. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Fourth, if, and if... 
He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Did you see that? You couldn't complete a sentence until you got to verse 9 because he gave us these three specific events, four ifs, but three events, three particular examples of judgment. He gave us two examples of salvation and he makes one point, one truth, the Lord's reliable reputation. He said, Did God spare the judgment of the angels? Answer, no. Did God spare judgment on the ancient world? That's pre-flood world in which Genesis 6 says, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And who for 120 years, these people closed their ears, closed their eyes to the message of a coming judgment and the offer of an ark of salvation? They closed their ears to it. They said, you're a fool. You're an idiot. How could you believe that that's coming? There's no rain. Did God spare those people in that judgment? Answer, no. Did God spare judgment on a city that Genesis and Ezekiel say were steeped in the sins of homosexuality, pride, gluttony, laziness, and a failure to care for the poor and needy. Did God spare judgment on them? No. He turned them to ashes. And yet, did God graciously save Noah and his family, eight out of an entire world? Yes. And did God graciously save Lot and his family? Just a few amongst an entire city? Yes. And so, then, therefore, the Lord's reputation is reliable. He is a good judge and a gracious Savior. And what he did then reminds us he'll do it again. I don't mean to use such a light illustration here to take away from the weightiness of the matter, But yesterday, my wife's cooking reputation was on the line. So I feel like I really need to defend at this point. At our table for breakfast, we had some amazing looking eggs, some pancakes, and some berries. And when I got my plate and sat down and I looked at it all, I said out loud, "Mm, this is great. To which my six-year-old son replied to me, he kind of laughed, rightly so, he laughed. He's like, Dad, you haven't even eaten it yet. You can't say that. To which I replied, yes, I know, but your mom made it. And that means it's going to be great. See, Julia's track record of tasty breakfasts in the past made me so confident in the present that what I was about to do in the very near future would be great. 
and therefore I could deem it great before I even had it. Pretty soon we all tasted reality and confirmed her reputation is pretty reliable. Peter's saying history from yesterday is theology for today. And it tells us what's coming in the future. All of those events he mentions were types of judgment and salvation that pointed beyond themselves. They were historical, biblical, actual but they pointed to something greater, a greater judgment, a greater salvation. And the question would become, when will that great salvation and great judgment finally come? When King Jesus returns. Now let me ask you a question. Do you remember from our previous studies, what was the main thing that these false teachers were denying? They were denying he was ever coming back. And so Peter's saying the proof is in the text. And the proof is in the promise that when he returns, he will judge and he will save. So regardless of what you think, regardless of what theology you hold, regardless of your scoffing and your mocking, it doesn't matter. This is what's true. All of these point to this coming salvation and judgment. That's what chapter 3 in 2 Peter is all about. I can't get into it now. I've got more sermons to preach later. But that's the point. They're denying the return. And so they're saying, live however you want. Indulge your lusts. Gratify your desires. Jesus ain't coming back. He's not Lord of your life. Do what you want. Now, church, I, as I think about these texts... I wonder if you feel similar to me and that sometimes it feels like I live in a world where people scoff at the thought of Jesus coming back. Have you, have you ever had that? I mean, I was listening to a book this week where the guy was making a mockery. I had to shut, off, I had to shut it off because it was so repulsive to me. I mean, does it ever feel to you that you live in a land that promotes sexual immorality, especially homosexuality, to such a degree that they not only want you to celebrate it, but they are inviting your indulgence in it? Please participate and promote it, lest you be a bigot. Do you ever feel like you live in a time of American history where greed governs so much of our government? And so much of the church, where frauds and criminals and wolves are spiritual leaders? I mean, I read this, I feel a whole lot like Noah. I feel a lot like Lot, which is weird to say, but I feel a lot like Lot preaching to people who won't listen. Not you guys, but preaching to a world that doesn't seem like anybody's listening. I drive past on, on my road, uh, there's a neighbor who has uh, a rainbow flag that I see every single time I pass by. And it, sometimes it feels to me like, I just want to go talk with that guy. I just want to have a great conversation with him. But it greatly 
distresses me, torments my soul within to think about having to guard our children from that kind of sexual immorality or wonder when it's going to strike next or how do I talk about that in a way that's gracious and honorable yet firm and true. It seems like I can't strike the balance. So I tend to feel a lot like Lot, a lot like Noah, sinful myself, yet just telling other sinners that salvation is given. Not righteous because of my works, righteous by my faith in the promises of the Lord. Do you ever feel like that? (laughs) We may feel like that, but what we cannot and may not do is fail to live in light of the Lord's reliable reputation. The Lord isn't blind to evil people, to wolves infiltrating and threatening us. He's not waiting for somebody to write a how to judge, how to save manual and give it to him so he knows how to carry this thing out. He's done it before. He will do it again. That is Peter's point. God's reputation is to rescue and to repay, to save and to judge. And that ought to promote great confidence and comfort in us. Who amidst our trials and temptations are maybe invited to or prone to doubt his goodness? Criticize his timing? Lord, why have you not come back yet? Grow weary in doing good? I just just can't keep doing this, Lord. Just take me home. Or maybe even take vengeance in our own hands instead of entrusting it to the Lord. We can be confident and comforted that God will rescue us. But that truth ought to also promote great fear in all who deny his authority. Peter turns back in the following verses to people who do exactly that. He talks about the conduct that marks these false teachers. Our second point is, from verses 10 through 19, the criminal's evil conduct. Peter circles back to these false teachers, and he uses very graphic language. It's very strong language, but it's all kinds of word pictures, all kinds of word plays. If you were reading this in the Greek, you would, you would know that he's He's using the same sounds. He's using the same letters to start words. He's being very strategic. And what I believe he's doing is he is meticulously and fiercely crafting a holy pastoral tirade in the best sense of the word. Peter goes off like a dad. Like a dad thinking about his little children being preyed upon by grown men, seduced and enticed, holy fury, righteous anger would well up and you would go get them. Here we have a good pastor who's willing to call evil, evil and call criminals out for what they're doing. 
The final phrase of verse 10 sets up the rest of this section. It says, especially those, right? He knows how to rescue and judge. He knows, he knows how to judge, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And in a couple verses, he's going to mention greed again. So church, look, what he's saying is he's highlighting those three markers of a false teacher yet again. We learned about it last week. He's coming back with it now. They're greedy. They despise authority. Remember, he denied the master who bought them. And they are sexually immoral in their living. He says the same thing here. Verse 10 goes on. Bold and willful, they do not tremble. When you hear that word, you should hear brash arrogance. Just sheer defiance. Well, the best pictures that I can think of are Conor McGregor strutting. Like, you know, like that kind of arrogance or like Donald Trump level of humility. That's what he's talking about right here. He's saying these guys blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, they're not even willing to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Let me make sense of that. He's saying, look, these guys are so willing to defy boundaries of authorities that Angels, good angels themselves, will not even rebuke a fallen angel. Even Jude tells us, Michael said, right, the Lord rebuke you. He's going, good angels won't even do that. These guys, they're just ignorant fools. They're talking about things they don't even know. And it is proof positive they will burst any bounds of authority and disrespect anybody, including, including celestial beings. Verse 12, he switches the word picture. But these, like irrational animals, that is creatures who will not think, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, they're blaspheming. Again, they're talking about matters which they are ignorant about. He uses this picture to say, look, cattle don't do biblical counseling. The elk and the bear are not running fish, wildlife, and park services, right? Like the fish at the hatchery are not organizing the hatchery. They're just being fish. They're doing what they do. They're just being bears and elk. and They're just being cattle. They just go by their desires. They're not thinking about truth. They're not setting up systems to live in light of who God is. They're just being themselves. He's saying that's how these false teachers are living. Whatever they want, they just go after. If they want sex, they'll go for it. If they want money, they'll go for it. If they want to exploit you to get one of those things, it doesn't matter. They'll go for it. They're living like animals. And it's costly because it says in the text, they will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. In other words, judgment will be their compensation for all that they've stolen from people. We know that Romans tells us that the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what he's talking about. He says they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. You know, my college football coach used to say, nothing good happens after midnight. These guys don't even wait till midnight. They just satisfy their lusts in broad daylight. Text goes on, their blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. What he's, he's using this image to say this. 
These guys look at every woman as a candidate for adultery. Who can I gratify my lust with next? Their desire for sin is insatiable. It can't be satisfied. And so they entice, they bait unsteady souls. I think he's talking about new believers or immature believers, those who aren't flourishing but are floundering, those who might be finding themselves drifting in the faith or so new to it that they're naive. But that's the target of these false teachers. They're preying on these little, weak, young, naive lambs. Their hearts are trained in greed. That's where their gym subscription is. And then he ends with this startling identity. Accursed children. He's not calling them children of God. Literally, you translate as that, that as children of the curse. Their father is not the Lord. It is the curse of the Lord. They're under his curse, not his blessing. And then immediately he shifts another example because he starts thinking about greed, cursing, and blessing, and it shifts him right to the Old Testament arch-heretic, Balaam. Prototype heretic, verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Remember how the text last week said that in their greed they would exploit you? That's loving gain from wrongdoing. That's what Balaam did. Verse 16, but he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. He rebuked him, right? Peter, it seems like Peter is just, he's trying to communicate how insane these people are acting. He's saying, there once was a false prophet who ministered like you out of greed he was living like an animal like you are, and God used an animal to rebuke him. This is madness. This is crazy. He switches the metaphor even yet again. Verse 17, these are waterless springs misdriven by a storm. Imagine a, a tired and weary traveler in the Middle East who's just parched and thirsty and he comes upon a spring, and he's so happy and so glad, and he bends down on his hands and knees, and he goes to scoop it up, and all he has is sand. No water. How frustrating, how disappointing to get your hopes up like that and be so let down. Or imagine the dry land suffering from drought that suddenly a these dark clouds that look like they might bring some rain and moisture, they start coming the way of the land and then pass by without a single drop. Like that, false teachers are deceptive because they can't give you what they promise. They can't deliver. 
Verse 17 goes on, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice. Again, they bait it like a fishing lure. They bait by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in air. In other words, they're saying, come, come gratify yourself. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. In other words, these guys preach a big game. They preach a path to freedom, but they only lead you back to a prison cell. They say they're living the high life, but they're living on death row. Now, 2 Peter chapter 3, right at the end, it tells us that these men were twisting some of the Apostle Paul's letters. They were twisting scripture to make them say what they wanted to for their own destruction, though. And I would venture to say, in light of what's being taught here, they were probably taking maybe a chapter like Galatians 5. Talks about your freedom in Christ. For freedom, you've been set free. Don't come under a yoke of slavery again. The false teachers were probably taking a text like that, and maybe like Romans 6, saying, you're not under the law, you're under grace. And they're saying, see, he's not your master. You don't have to obey the law. Do what you want. Come with us. Come enjoy yourself. Come and delight yourself in all these pleasures. But their very lives were proof that the freedom they were offering was only slavery. They themselves were slaves to those lusts and pleasures. These are all very striking images that Peter means to help us think talk and feel rightly about the severity and atrocity, the criminality of men and women who live like this. And it's hard in our day to do that when the people who are doing this kind of damage and living in this kind of way, they don't ever make our headlines. When was the last time you read a front page news story in a well-known news outlet about how last Sunday that guy got up on stage while he made all these other people come down and give him all the money and call it robbery or fraud or theft? Hardly. Now, I know that I'm prone to wander and prone to leave the God I love. I know I need the grace of Christ. And I know that there are ways that even our own lives can drift into this revelry, pursuit of sexual immorality, greediness, and wanting more, never being satisfied. We get that. But church, these guys are committing these spiritual crimes at such a level that gets them judgment and that entices others away.
they must be taken with the utmost seriousness. And that means that as you and I sit here today, if we see any of these things, a glimpse or a hint in our own lives, God, help us. Help us turn back to the truth. And let us help one another as we guard and protect each other from wolves and criminals that rise up from among us. Now we transition to our very last point, and this is the pinnacle of Peter's argument. Verses 20 through 22 are one final warning about the serious danger and the grave consequences of being a false teacher and of following false teachers. Now listen, if you have checked out at all, please give me 15 seconds of your attention. Because if you leave and you don't hear anything but what I'm about to say, it would be devastating to me. True Christians cannot lose their salvation. But this text is a loving warning from Jesus Christ to any of us who are moving toward the lies. This text is one of the most difficult and disturbing texts in the New Testament that I can think of. And most pastors and preachers, when we get to a text like this, we either want to not preach 2 Peter 2 or we want to scurry along because of its severity. The problem is, is that people approach this text only worried about theology. Can we lose our salvation? Can we turn on Christ? Instead of hearing the gracious, loving voice of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who is warning you and me against taking any steps towards them. I have been so ministered to by Jesus Christ himself as I've considered these verses. They are like wisdom crying out in the street in Proverbs. They're like the father appealing to his son. My son, when sinners entice you, don't follow after them. And here, yes, Peter loves the people, but here is the love of Jesus Christ, your good shepherd. He is the one who said, my sheep hear my voice. And so when Jesus gives a warning we who are his sheep will hear his voice. And if you are not his sheep, then you will continue to resist his voice. And you will inevitably prove yourself to have never been among God's true fold. But your true nature is what time will tell. 
That is so significant because that's what these verses tell us. They warn false teachers about the severity and depths of hell that they will experience in the judgment. And it is our Savior's gracious, loving appeal and invitation to any who are weak and unstable or feeling led astray to come back. To come back and know the safety of being amongst a people who are living in light of their identity who are pursuing spiritual maturity, who are submissive to Christ's scriptural authority, and who therefore are resisting heresy. He says, come, know my heart. Don't go astray. Let me make it very clear again. Let's read the text. Verse 20, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than, for them than the first. It would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. So what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. The pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Church, hear it loud and clear. Peter is talking about real people. He's giving a real warning because there is a real threat. Because what is really happening is real people in real churches like ours are making real professions of faith in Jesus Christ, showing early signs of spiritual fruit. They seem to really be repenting. They used to stay out late. Now they're getting up early for church. They used to go to this group. Now they're at Bible study. They're doing Christian things. They're using churchy words. That's really happening. But time is indicating that their appearance may only be just that, an appearance, where they change one circumstances for another. Instead of being a part of this group, they're just now a part of the church. But they're not truly a part of Christ because people are really rejecting the master and really leading others and being led astray into heresy and sexual immorality. So Peter's not saying that true Christians, the elect, can lose their salvation. No, this is a passage that's saying, Christians, remember, God will be just and judge these mean, wicked, evil, destructive people. And if you find yourself straying, hear my voice, come back. Because these false teachers have put themselves in a perilous situation. They could still repent but at the same time, they can't repent. What does that mean? They could still repent, but they can't repent. Do you know why? Because repenting would mean that they have to submit to Jesus' authority, which is the very thing they're not willing to do. And that, friends, is an unforgivable position. The invitation is offered, but you've torn up the ticket that is the only flight off of the island. You have barricaded by your own will 
and your own unbelief and your own resistance to King Jesus, you have barricaded the only escape out of this burning room. Peter uses the same language Jesus did. Yes, Jesus himself in Matthew 18 when he said it would have been better For if anyone causes one of my little ones to stumble, that's to forsake discipleship, turn away, it would have been better for that person to have a great millstone hung around their neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. Church, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. It's because he loves his lambs. He cares about his lambs. And so the level of accountability for these false teachers is raised. Let not many of you, James says, become a teacher. For you will incur a stricter judgment. And so as he warns false teachers, he invites New, young, unstable, naive, growing, maturing believers to take heed to the reality that if you will not pursue maturity and you will not heed the shepherd's voice, the consequences are horrific. For we know that a young child naive to the danger of a strange man in a strange car offering candy is a whole lot more likely to be led astray and experience the damage done there than a mature or older child who knows what danger looks like, where it lurks, and how to run away. Right? We know that. He's saying the true is for Christians. If you are not living in light of your identity, pursuing spiritual maturity, submitting to Scripture's authority, you will not resist heresy. You'll fall prey to it. And he's saying, don't. If you have, come back. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. My heart is gentle and lowly. If you hear my voice, do not harden your heart, but come. This is the most loving appeal I've ever heard in my life. And we want to sit here and talk about all the theology of who can and can't. This is Jesus Christ himself through his word calling his lamb saying, fear not little flock. For it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So stop going away. Lest, lest you prove yourself to have never been one of mine. Lest you return to what you had never really left and you end up in the unforgivable position that the false teachers are in, locked in a vicious cycle where you will be held accountable for what you have known and it would have been better for you to have never known it than for you to trample the Son of God underfoot and reject the gospel of grace extended to you. And so he's saying, heed my voice. Come, know my forgiveness, know my satisfaction, rest in my great and precious promises. Experience my grace and peace and continue on, endure on in this community that is committed 
to flourishing. For that is Peter's beat that he says over and over and over. Church, this is, this is a clear text that can bring you great comfort or great fear. And wherever you find yourself today, there's one thing you can do, even now. That is come and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He is for you. He will rescue and he will repay. That's the truth about false teachers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for being such a good shepherd, such a faithful pastor to us. God, we are prone to wander, prone to leave you, and we don't want to. So Lord, as we stray, draw us near. Oh God, in every temptation and trial, let us look to you and your reliable reputation. Let us see very clearly how trustworthy and dependable you are. And let us wait with patience the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us walk in holiness until that day. Let us spur one another on to love and good deeds. Oh God, even now, let us teach and admonish one another with these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we might be grateful for the grace and peace that's ours in Christ Jesus, that we might rest with confidence in his secure grip of grace, and that we might even call Call the wolves to repent and see what a gracious Savior is for sinners like us, sinners like them. Oh God, be our help, be our strength. We pray for your glory, our joy, and endurance. Amen.